Ellen Bass is an award-winning poet who has been published in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and many other journals. Her newest book of poems, Indigo, will be published in April of 2020. Her other poetry books include Like a Beggar, The Human Line, and Mules of Love. She co-edited the first major anthology of women's poetry titled No More Masks. She founded poetry workshops at Salinas Valley State Prison and the Santa Cruz, California jails, and teaches in the MFA writing program at Pacific University. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to be here with you, Shannon. Yeah, this is great. Um, this is perfect timing that I'm talking to you since your new book of poems, Indigo, was just released this week. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it was also written up in the New York Times as a new and noteworthy poetry book. So very exciting. I was delighted. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. That's great. Um, and I thought we could start our conversation just with something you wrote about poetry. Um, you said poetry is always grappling with the question, how do we go on? And one way is to find beauty and humor in the humblest, most unexpected places and to praise this gorgeous, tender, terrifying life that is ours for just a second or two. I just love that quote. And I think it's a great just introduction to your poetry. Um, and related to that, I was hoping maybe you could read the poem Any Common Desolation from your new book. Sure, I'd be happy to. Any Common Desolation can be enough to make you look up at the yellowed leaves of the apple tree, the few that survived the rains and frost shot with late afternoon sun. They glow a deep orange gold against a blue so sheer, a single bird would rip it like silk. You may have to break your heart, but it isn't nothing to know even one moment alive the sound of an oar in an oarlock, or a ruminant animal tearing grass, the smell of grated ginger, the ruby neon of the liquor store sign, warm socks. You remember your mother, her precision a ceremony, as she gathered the white cotton, slipped it over your toes, drew up the heel, turned the cuff, a breath, can uncoil as you walk across your own muddy yard, the Big Dipper pouring night down over you, and everything you dread, all you can't bear, dissolves, and like a needle slipped into your vein, that sudden rush of the world. Thank you so much for reading that. I love that last line, the sudden rush of the world. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and then I was thinking we could you could possibly read Wilderness, which is another poem that has a similar sentiment about it. Yes, I'd be glad to. Wilderness. Break me like bread, tear me apart. Strip each rib down to light. Pour me out like a bucket of milk, sloshing hot from the teats of a goat. Shear my hair and toss it onto the back of the wind for the birds to weave. As the egret pecks at the elephant's hide, as the plover scrapes the crocodile's teeth, pick me clean. Whisper to my lonely breasts, tell them a story, you are going to die. But don't let me go until my body is a wilderness. You be the whale, I the krill. 
open your jaw and swim through my shoal. Empty me like a cargo ship, hoist cases of whiskey and all the flaming threads of saffron. Don't be patient. Plunge your hand through my flesh and pull out the nest of hair and teeth. Give me 18 sinuous arms like Avlokita Shivara so I can hold you through every terror. Give me infinite legs like the nude descending so I can be always rushing towards you. Thank you for reading that as well. So maybe we could talk a little bit just about poetry for you and just your writing. I was going to ask how your writing has been going during quarantine, if you've been blocked or inspired or does it waver day by day? Um, well, I, I have written two poems during this time and I'd like to be writing more, but it seems to be a time when the sharing of poetry is taking precedence. And I think that's a good thing. I think that poetry is a hard worker and it's a time when its work is really needed. People turn to poetry during tough times. And I think that um, right now it's, it's, uh, it's important. It's always important to me and to many other people, but even more and more important. I'm a, a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets and the signing up for poem a day that the Academy sends out was up 30% from its usual amount. And more and more people are needing poetry. I think it's exciting how all the poetry organizations are getting together to share poetry in all kinds of ways. And uh, coincidentally, April being National Poetry Month just uh, makes, makes that even more. But poetry is something that many people only turn to during difficult times. And I think that's, that's part of why the sharing of it is so important to all of us right now. Poetry gives us a, an opportunity to really look at any experience as part of the human experience and to take us a, a step further into whatever it is that we are having to confront. Um, I, I read uh, a, a line by the wonderful poet Ross Gay that I keep thinking about. And he said, joy is not a feeling or an accomplishment. It's an entering and a joining with the terrible. And I think that that is something that we have to do right now to be feeling people. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've, I've actually been enjoying, I've watched a couple of your um, broadcasts on, on Rattlecast and a couple others, and I've really been enjoying just listening to poetry during this time as well. It's a comfort and it's also a challenge. Um, the 
poet, uh, great poet, Rainer Maria Rilke said, uh, oh, tell us, poet, what do you do? I praise, but those dark, deadly, devastating ways, how do you bear them, suffer them? I praise. And I, I use that as the epigraph of my previous book before this new one, Indigo, and I think about that so much that that that's the poet's job to be always bringing us into awe, even in the most terrible of times, which this is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then just going back to your roots, just how did you fall into poetry or what, what, what sort of brought you there? I don't know why I fell in love with poetry so early. But I did. I, I loved reading poetry. I loved memorizing poetry. When I was in junior high and high school, I had my brother's old typewriter and I would take index cards and type out passages of poetry on them. And I think they... Well, I, it, clearly they, they spoke to something in me and something that didn't really make a kind of linear sense because some of the things that I was so moved by weren't really things that I had yet experienced in my life. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was almost like maybe a prescience or a premonition of that I that I was going to experience these things and was going to need these lines of poetry in my future life and then I started writing poetry myself when I was in college and I was very fortunate to meet my first great mentor Florence Howe who was co-founder of the Feminist Press, which is the longest running feminist press in the world. And they're gonna have their 50th anniversary in June. And Florence was my teacher at Galtrick College. And I, I wasn't a very good writer, of course. Well, I shouldn't say of course, there are people who are when they're young, but I was not, but I loved writing. And the interesting thing is I, I turned in an essay to her and this has always stayed with me. She didn't write good or bad or anything like that on it. She just wrote, you like to write. And I thought and continue to think it was one of the most brilliant things because she was holding up a mirror to me and showing me something about myself. And that's so much more important than any judgment. For sure. And then didn't you study with Anne Sexton as well? I did. I had, yeah. again, the great good fortune to study with Anne Sexton at Boston University, getting an MA in poetry. It was right before 
they started calling that degree an MFA. They called it an MA at the very beginning. And I think it was just the, um, Anne taught um, at Boston University just for a short time. Uh, She died in 1974 and I studied with her in 1970. And I think she started teaching there just the year before. She was a wonderful teacher. She was thoughtful. She was respectful. She was very grounded as a teacher. I don't know how she experienced teaching, but my in my imagination, how I picture it is that it was a place where she could be a certain person that was clearly hard for her in so many other areas. Her public persona was very flamboyant and obvious, you know, we know that she suffered a great deal uh, emotionally, mentally, but as a teacher, none of that was uh, happening. She was, she was just really solid and thoughtful. And then did you attend any poetry workshops that were particularly helpful to you or? Back then I didn't uh, go to very many workshops. I, I went to some, but my next, my next great essential mentor, I didn't begin working with until I was almost 50. And that's Dorianne Locks. And she taught me really everything I know. And I feel incredibly grateful to her. I, I interviewed uh, Susan Brown, a poem uh, earlier in the podcast, and she also talked about Dorian Locks being a huge influence on her. Yes. Dorian is not only a, a stellar poet, but uh, an extraordinarily gifted teacher as well. And then just um, going into your writing method, um, I guess, Maybe can you give a sample of a day in the life of you writing poetry or how your day goes or progresses or how you craft your poems? Yes, I can, but I I can talk about it, but I don't know how useful it is, but I'll tell you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I had a method. Let me start there. I wish I had a method that, that worked for me in a consistent way, but actually it's kind of catch as catch can for me. I, I don't have a regular writing practice. Like I sit down every day at a certain time. I did that for many years and uh, then it began to not work for me in that way. Um, but I do try and write as often as I can because it's what I most want and need to do and I sometimes start out just by free writing to see what emerges. But other times I start out with a clear idea of something that I want to tackle. Sometimes I start out with some sort of strategy, like uh, maybe I'll have read a poem that is structured in a certain way. And I think, oh, I could adapt that kind of structure myself. 
one thing that I often do, I, 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 I there are certain poets who find that there's a, a method that, that works for them pretty consistently. And if I were that kind of poet, I think I'd be very fortunate, but I have to just approach it any way I possibly can. Sometimes I'll take a few notes for a poem and hold on to them and just let my less conscious mind chew on that idea until I have time to sit down and really try to find the language to explore that idea. One thing that I do do a lot though, and fairly consistently, I've almost become what I would say dependent upon it, is that I often make myself a word list before I start. And this is a practice that I learned from Dorianne and from her husband, the fine and wonderful poet, Joe Millar. We started doing that together years back. And I'll make a word list of words that are interesting to me or maybe have a kind of solidity about them or just random words. And sometimes I'll take them from poems. Sometimes I'll take them from the newspaper. And then I try and incorporate as many of those poems as I can into the poem as I'm writing it. It's very useful for me because I have a, a little bit of an overly logical mind for a poet. I think, I think all poets are somewhere on the continuum of wild mind and logical mind. And I think those of us who are toward wild mind have to sometimes work to get enough clarity into our poems. Those of us who are on my end, where there's a little too much logic, we have to work to get more wildness in, to allow the unexpected and unruly come into the poem and to allow ourselves to be veered, veered uh, off the more obvious course into the less predictable course. And I find that the word list does that for me. And sometimes the whole poem would never have been able to emerge at all if I didn't have that list, that it turns out that there was a word from that list that just clicked the poem into a different gear where it could then become itself. Yeah, it was interesting. I was uh, interesting because I was listening to a master class with Billy Collins the other day, mm -hmm. and he recommends as a prompt that you go to other people's poems and take the first line from the poem mm -hmm. and then just see where that leads you mm -hmm. in your writing, which yeah. I think is an interesting That's prompt. That's a wonderful prompt. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also heard in one of the interviews that you enjoy taking daily walks and sometimes you find inspiration on your walks. I do. I take, I take walks every, I'm like a dog. I have to go out every day. Uh, when, when I had my dear dog who has passed away, but, uh, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm going to take Zeke out for a walk. But really it was, you know, I've gone out for a walk and I'm just going to take him along with me. Um, <laughs> and, and even now, it, just being able to walk around the neighborhood is great. I have, I, I live in Santa Cruz on the west side and there's wide enough streets that you can, and very little traffic. So I can 
just go out and at least look around and move my body. And, and often on those walks, I do see things. Sometimes if I'm working on a poem and I'm searching for a description or a detail or especially a metaphor, I will look for that literally as I walk along. You know, is it like this? Is it like that? Is it like that? And then it, I also heard in that same interview that Indigo, the title poem, was um, inspired by someone you saw when you were out on your walk. So I was thinking maybe you could read Indigo for us now. Yes, I'd be happy to. And it, it was when I, I'll read the poem, but I'll just tell you, you know, when I saw this man, everything that I had been trying to write for the past 40 years clicked into place in an immediate way. And the whole possibility of the poem came from, from being able to see this man. Indigo. As I'm walking on Westcliff Drive, a man runs toward me, pushing one of those jogging strollers with shock absorbers so the baby can keep sleeping, which this baby is. I can just get a glimpse of its almost translucent eyelids. The father is young, a jungle of indigo and carnelian, tattooed from knuckle to jaw, leafy vines and blossoms, saints and symbols. Thick wooden plugs pierce his lobes, and his sunglasses testify to the radiance haloed around him. I'm so jealous, as I often am. It's a kind of obsession. I want him to have been my child's father. I want to have married a man who wanted to be in a body, who wanted to live in it so much that he marked it up like a book, underlining, highlighting, writing in the margins, I was here. Not like my dead ex-husband, who was always fighting against the flesh, who sat for hours on his Zafu chanting Om, and then went out and broke his hand punching the car. I imagine when this galloping man gets home, he's going to want to have sex with his wife, who slept in late, and then he'll eat barbecued ribs and let the baby teethe on a bone while he drinks a dark beer. I can't stop wishing my daughter had had a father like that. I can't stop wishing I'd had that life. Oh, I know, it's a miracle to have a life, any life at all. It took eight years for my parents to conceive me. First, there was the war, and then just waiting. And my mother's bones so narrow, she had to be slit and I airlifted. That anyone is born, each precarious success, from sperm and egg to zygote, embryo, infant, is a wonder. And here I am alive, almost 70 years, and nothing has killed me. Not the car I totaled running a stop sign or the spirochete that screwed into my blood. Not the tree that fell in the forest exactly where I was standing. My best friend shoving me backward so I fell on my ass as it crashed. I'm alive. And I gave birth to a child. So she didn't get a father who'd sling her onto his shoulder. And so much else she didn't get. I've cried most of my life over that. And now 
There's everything that we can't talk about. We love, but cannot take too much of each other. Yet she is the one who, when I asked her to kill me, if I no longer had my mind, we were on our way into Ross, shopping for dresses. That's something she likes, and they all look adorable on her. She's the only one who didn't hesitate or refuse or waver or flinch. As we strode across the parking lot, she said, okay, but when's the cutoff? That's what I need to know. Thank you for reading that. Um, and then transitioning just to sort of how do you know when a poem is finished? And it was a tricky question, but do you re rework your poems over and over? Or Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I do. I do. I rework them a lot. Um, some poems more than others. Some poems come out uh, a, a bit more whole and uh, they need fine tuning, perhaps. Um, but some poems are really just a total mess. And <laughs> I encourage my students not to be afraid of messiness, not to uh, be afraid to make a mess. And I always think back to a time when I was in college and I was in a, uh, a visual art class uh, making art and I, I'm not at all talented in that regard so it was it was just it was just to try it and uh, there was one student who was very talented and she one day I remember was working in charcoal and her big page was just full of charcoal dust and looked like an absolute pig pen. And I was watching her work. And then when she was done, she took the page and, you know, kind of flapped it around and let the dust go off of it. And it was, it was extraordinary. It was real art. And I always think back to that of the messiness of creation. And so, Yes, yeah, some are very messy. Some are not quite as messy. How do you know when it's done? Uh, Marie Howe gave a great definition of that um, once. She said, when you shake it and it doesn't rattle. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love that. That's a good list. Yeah. And actually, I saw you read with Marie Howe. That's how I got introduced to you. I, I saw you were at a reading in Kensington. Oh, right. That's where I, yes. that's where I discovered your work. That so. was a wonderful reading, a benefit for the She Fund that, that Kim Rosen uh, works with helping uh, to put young Kenyan girls through uh, graduate school of some kind. Um either technical school or college that she started um, Evensler's uh, safe house in Kenya that was helping girls escape from female genital mutilation. And then as these girls were able to be safe and uh, started to look around, they realized that they needed more education. So Kim Rosen, who is the author of a wonderful book called Saved by a Poem about learning poems by heart uh, started this 
fund called the She Fund. And I think they've sent already like, do you remember, Shannon, like 40 was, yeah, or 50? Yeah. 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 I think it was that many girls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To college. Yeah, yeah. To college. So that's, that was a great reading. And Marie and I teach together, <clears throat> excuse me, twice a year, we teach a, a five day workshop together, uh, sometimes in Taos, sometimes in California. Hopefully go- we'll be in person again before too long. Oh, definitely. Um, do you yourself go to readings a lot? Um, or yes, I do. I do. <laughs> Besides the one that you're leading, of course. <laughs> I yes, I, I do go to a lot of readings, and the beauty of uh, being able to listen now to readings uh, online is is just sustaining me. Yeah, don't have to deal with commuting or parking parking as well, which is nice. <laughs> There are some perks, yes, <laughs> although they are, are small. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> and then is there much of a poetry community in Santa Cruz? There is. There always has been. Uh, I moved to Santa Cruz County in 1974, and the enthusiasm for poetry really was fabulous right from the beginning right from the the old days we had lots of poetry readings some of them in in bars and um, coffee shops and uh, everywhere and there's always been a a big appreciation for poetry our local bookstore bookshop santa cruz has had many many poets uh, with new books come through and read here. So for, for a small city, we have a thriving poetry community and we have a new poetry organization now called The Hive. And our current poet laureate, Danusha Lamaris, is, uh, has started that up as her poet laureate project. She, uh, she's another one of my favorite poets. She has a new book out uh, Bonfire Opera. Um, I know you mentioned Rilke as one of your poets that you like, but do you have other favorite poets? I have so many favorite poets. My goodness. Dorian, of course. Joe Millar. Sharon Olds. I still read again and again. Anne Sexton. I love the poetry of Frank Gaspar. I think he's one of the are, are great poets who is not well enough known. If you haven't read, if you're listening and you love poetry and you haven't read Frank Gaspar, go and get his book, Late Rapturous. Uh, extraordinary. He writes um, very dense poems. By dense, I mean they, they have long lines and there isn't a lot of white space. So you can't rush through them. You want to sit down when you have time and read one slowly out loud and you will be knocked over. I love Jericho Brown so much. Toy Derricott so much. Marie Howe, one of our great living poets. Um, And then what are challenges you face as a poet? I mean, besides, I guess, getting started with the prompts or are there other challenges you face as well? I think the hardest thing for me is how to speak to 
the greater public, social, political, economic, race concerns that are so pressing on all of us and how to speak to those in poetry without it being rhetorical or an essay or just telling people what they already know. Uh, I think that I have a strong a strong um, urging inside me just to speak to some of these, to explore some of these. And I, I am able to now and then do that, but not nearly as, as much as, as I wish I could. That, that's a big challenge for me. And so when these concerns come into my poems, usually they come in in more subtle ways and that's very good too uh when when i have a poem that maybe is more about personal domestic concerns but allows the greater world to enter Uh, but i i wish i could speak more directly to some of these things than i'm often able and then what's a nugget of advice you'd give to a young poet or someone new to writing poetry in terms of maybe getting started or persisting with it? Well, if I could give just one piece of advice, and that's all I got to give, it would be that when they're trying, when you're trying to write a poem, go slowly and go for detail. That the, the, I think that if if you slow down and describe and describe in as much detail as possible that your poem is going to be much richer. It's, it's detail and description that carry most of the emotion in a poem. So of course, as you develop, you want to, be selective about what details you include. The detail has to earn its keep. It has to be strong enough for the amount of real estate that it takes up in your poem. But if you're beginning, the main thing is to practice detail. And of course, to do that, you have to observe. You have to look and use all of your senses to observe that detail, whether you're looking, hearing, smelling, but taking it slow, not rushing. That's great advice. And then do you have any recommended books for new poets? I, I know Dorian Locks write the help, write the book with uh, Kim. Yes, the Poets uh, Companion. Yeah. 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 That's, that's still, I think, one of the very best books for uh, beginning poets. Um, and There are so many books about the craft that are just wonderful and ones that I read and reread. Just in the last week, I've been rereading Ed Hirsch's How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. And I've read and gone back to that book 
so many times and still find it exciting. Um, Jane Hirschfield's books, Nine Gates is one and Ten Windows is the other. I don't know that I'd say, um, you know, that, that I wouldn't say that's for a beginning poet. It's mm -hmm. for any poet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you just, you can't, uh, it, you know, every, every paragraph is like poetry. You know, her essays are, are so smart and so lyrical and so beautifully written and tell us so much about poetry. Yeah, and I guess just reading a lot of poetry is helpful oh, yeah. to a starting poet, obviously. Yes, yes. I, I, I think that, um, I know that for me, I believed for a long time that the more I wrote, the better I would get. That the way to learn to write better is just to keep writing. And I discovered that that's not true that unless you are studying, really studying poetry, how the poems you admire are put together, you know, taking them apart, really looking at them, imitating them, then your poems might not get better if you just keep writing. So I wrote in circles for too many years until I was fortunate enough to work with Dorianne who really taught me how, how to learn. And then I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your work in the state prison. Um, to me, that's just fascinating. So I was thinking maybe you could read your poem that's um, about that experience, and then we could talk a little bit about that as well. Yes, thanks. I'd love to read that poem. Bringing Flowers to Salinas Valley State Prison. When Mr. H saw the little meadow blooming on the steel table, he bowed to the starry faces of jasmine. This is the first flower I've smelled in 20 years. And when I slid each man a bouquet in a paper cup, Mr. M said, I'll have such a short time with these. We spoke then about beauty and loss, the great themes of poetry. And when our time was done and the guards said they had to leave the flowers, most of the men acquiesced, but Mr. S insisted he had, as a Native American, a right to his rituals, sage, sweet corn, tobacco, and no one could stop him, it was the law, from taking these sacred plants back to his cell. Then he raised his cup and drank the water the flowers were drinking, and a small wind stirred in that windowless room as we watched Mr. S quietly bite the heads off the Peruvian lilies, crushing their pink sepals and the gold inner petals flecked with maroon, swallowing the silvery filaments, their dark pollen-laden anthers, his mouth frothing with blossoms. Thank you so much. I love the imagery just of Mr. S drinking the water the flowers were in and biting the heads off the lilies. Yes, it was. Uh, it, it, it's, it still gives me chills to, to think about him and uh, the way that 
he was going to take those flowers with him one way or another. <laughs> so are, are you still doing this work in the prisons? Well, um, the work is being carried on. I was, I got a, a phone call um, from the prison psychologist uh, uh, quite a number of years back. And um, his name is Ben Block, and he is a poet, and he's the son of the poet Hannah Block. And he wanted to start a poetry workshop at Salinas Valley State Prison. And he found me only because he looked in, he didn't know me at all. He just looked in the Poets and Writers directory and looked for somebody who lived not too far from Salinas and called me up and said, would you be willing to teach a poetry workshop? And I said, yeah, I would. I'd, in fact, I've thought about that for a long time, but um, you know, never quite got to it. So I'm glad you're asking. And yes. And it took oh, about nine months to get through all the paperwork and bureaucracy, but it got set up and I taught there for a fairly short time. And then it is quite a long commute from Santa Cruz to um, Soledad. And so, uh, and my schedule made it hard for me to continue, but I had uh, some students who were interested in teaching and they took over the classes and then some other local poets joined in and started teaching there. So it's now a very stable, of course it's suspended now during COVID, but it will come back, a very stable and ongoing workshop there. And it's been incredibly gratifying to the teachers and to the men who are incarcerated there. And then a couple of years ago when I was Santa Cruz's poet laureate, I started a program with the help of one of my students, the poet Nancy Gomez Miller. And she um, and I got workshops started in the Santa Cruz jails. And we now have, again, suspended, but they will return. We have six or seven ongoing workshops for men and for women in all the jails in Santa Cruz. And one workshop at the library for incarcerated people who are being um, coming back into the community after they've served their term. And do you have any maybe stories you can share, obviously not mentioning names, but just of how maybe transformation you saw on, in your time working with these people or? Yes. Um, w one of the most beautiful things and shows the power of poetry is that in all of these workshops, both in the jails and in the prison, the the boundaries between this group and that group, this race and that group, uh, this gang and that group just fell down in the workshop. And men were talking to each other with, and women, 
with respect and tenderness, regardless of any of these uh, groups uh, that, that, that would ordinarily not have spoken to each other or been adversarial. So that was, that was amazing. The other thing that really touched me deeply and painfully was how hungry, especially I felt this at uh, teaching at Salinas Valley State Prison, but in the, in the jails too, how hungry so many of these people were for real respectful conversation. And that was something that they had, some of them had never encountered in their life having a conversation where you listen and are being listened to. And we know that even in life, this isn't the easiest thing in the world. Uh, you know, how much we often don't listen to each other, not really deeply listen. How often, this is going off on a tangent, but it's worth saying, I yeah. think. You know, how, how, how often you say to somebody, this is something I'm going through right now. And they say back to you, oh yeah, I went through that a couple of years ago and this is my experience. Or yeah, my aunt had that experience and, I'll, and or my aunt's neighbor had that experience. And all of a sudden you're not being listened to at all. Mm -hmm. And this is even among very sophisticated, smart, meditating mm -hmm. caring people <laughs> and um it's it, it's it's something that you know really listening really being listened to is is something that happens in any good poetry workshop we share the poem we talk about it somebody says something and somebody else really hears it and responds not just you know oh yeah and now let me tell you about me, mm -hmm. but really responds with curiosity or asks a real question. And I think that, that that was one of the most gratifying parts of, of the teaching and the being, being part of the workshop. And, and did any of the people in the prisons just express to you how they felt better through writing poetry or just oh, how it changed their yes. lives? Oh my God, yes. There was, uh, I remember a woman in the Santa Cruz jails who was started writing every day and she had struggled badly with addiction. And she said, now I can have a healthy addiction. I can do this. Right. Uh, and this, this keeps me going. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just holding on to it. And there was uh, a man who, when he was leaving the jail, said to Nancy that he wanted to give his children this experience. Where could he, where could he find a poetry workshop for his children so that they didn't have to wait so long to have this kind of deep emotional and intellectual and spirit kind of sharing. 
That's wonderful. And then if others want to get involved in this, um, who would they contact or how could they get a hold of the organization? Uh, if they are interested in teaching in the jails, they can email my assistant, Jen, and her email is Jen, J-E-N, at ellenbass.com. Great. Wonderful. Um, well, I thought we could close the interview with you reading a poem of your choice from Indigo, since I've given you a couple uh, requests, but whatever you'd like to read for the final poem. Great. I think I will read Kiss. Kiss. When Lynn saw the lizard floating in her mother-in-law's swimming pool, she jumped in. And when it wasn't breathing, its body limp as a baby drunk on milk, she laid it on her palm and pressed one fingertip to its silky breast with just about the force you need to test the ripeness of a peach, only quicker, a brisk little push with a bit of spring in it. Then she knelt, dripping wet in her Doc Martens and camo t-shirt with a neck ripped out, and bent her face to the lizard's face, her big plush lips to the small stiff jaw that she'd pried apart with her opposable thumb. And she blew a tiny puff into the lizard's lungs. The sun glared against the turquoise water. What did it matter if she saved one lizard, one lizard more or less in the world? But she bestowed the kiss of life again and again until the lizard's wrinkled lids peeled back, its muscles roused its own first breath, and she set it on the hot cement where it rested a moment before darting off. Thank you. I hadn't read this one from your collection yet. I really love that. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. It feels, feels good for right now. One small savior. Please subscribe to the Living Artist Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to review the podcast and share it so that I can get more listeners and establish a larger Living Artist community.